Man, aren't you excited to be a part of a church where you get to see people step from death to life? 19 people cross all campuses today. Just praise God one more time for all those decisions. What a blessing. And I know we'll celebrate this another time. We'll have pictures on the screens, but I can't help but just share with you. Last Sunday, we had Getting to Know You, had over 80 people actually make the decision to connect membership and, and become members here at Upstate Church, First Baptist Simpsonville. I know that you'll want to celebrate that as well. That's all this week, man. We're grateful for that. And so I know you may be our guest here today, man. I just want you to go ahead and lean in. And uh, regardless, if you're new to the area, you've just moved in, maybe you're checking us out online before you come, uh, because I know you just never know. Come from some places, some Baptist in some places in the country, do some crazy stuff, all right? So I get checking you out before you show up. Uh, but let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn uh, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, while you're turning, let me just say one more time, we've mentioned this last Sunday, but real quickly, this afternoon at 4 p.m., Amy and I will be meeting over in the choir room, which is just right out the lobby and to, to this side of the worship center, uh, the choir room over here, we'll meet at 4 p.m. Anybody interested in going to the Holy Land next June, one year from now, uh, be taking another uh, trip to the Holy Land, we've taken about 150 uh, over the last few years, and so I'd love for you guys to be a part of that next June. One year from now gives you time, a good bit of time and a runway to pay for it and get ready for it, but this evening at 4 p.m. we'll meet in the choir room. Exodus chapter 3. We started last Sunday in the book of Exodus, and uh, we told you on the way out, I hope you grabbed your reading guide uh, where we're reading through the book of Exodus. If not, they're at the information next steps desk on the way out. You can grab one of these, just take it, and you can follow along and see where we're reading and what we'll be preaching from every week. The reason that's important is because there's an awful lot of Scripture every Sunday. Last Sunday, we went through Exodus chapters 1 and 2, two chapters in one 32-minute message. And today, we're in Exodus chapter 3. It's an awful lot of Scripture. And so I want you to go and turn in, turn on your Bibles to Exodus 3 and be ready because we're going to be reading through it, and uh, you'll need to follow along. But we're walking through this whole idea of who God is and, and really how he delivers his people from bondage. Now, the entire Exodus picture in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing and a picture of the deliverance of every one of us who have been saved. And the picture today of these baptisms is a beautiful demonstration of the grace of God and how he has brought us all out of bondage. He's literally delivered us all from bondage to sin and death. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what he's done. It's a big deal. It's beyond even a deliverance from Egypt in the picture of Israel, but this is nonetheless a miraculous thing. So the entire book of Exodus is a story of God delivering his people. Last week, we talked about a couple of verses we'll allude back to in just a moment. But let's begin in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And in these six verses, we see Moses keeping his father-in-law's sheep in the shadow of Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is actually also known as Mount Sinai. It's important to know that because Mount Sinai is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments later on. Uh, and so he's in the shadow of Mount Horeb keeping a bunch of sheep. Now, he has started keeping these sheep at age 40. And now by the time we are in Exodus chapter 3, Moses has turned 80. So this is, he's already finished uh, with two-thirds of his life. 
And, uh, and so Moses keeping these sheep in, in uh, the shadow of Mount Sinai, and he, he's led the flock into the wilderness. Now, wilderness, when I was a kid, I used to read in the Bible about the wilderness and think like jungle, because that's kind of what I think of wilderness. But in Bible, uh, the wilderness really means like desert. All right, so even those of you who've been there, the Holy Land, you know. I mean, this is like desert land. And so uh, Moses is leading these sheep into this desert space in the shadow of Mount Horeb. Uh, and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire in a burning bush. Now, the bush was burning, but it didn't burn up. The word consumed, it wasn't consumed, it didn't burn up. And so God called out of this burning bush... And he offered some clear instructions to Moses. All this is kind of setting up to verse 5 in Exodus chapter 3. Do not come near, God said to Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You're going to hear that time and time again. And uh, it reminds us of Genesis chapter 50 that we read last week in verse 24 when Joseph said to his brothers on his deathbed, he said, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So it's this, this uh, statement of the promise that was given to Abraham years ago, generations ago. On Joseph's deathbed, he remembers... And then in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 that we read last week, says, And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So here is Moses out of, in the middle of a desert, hearing God speak in just a moment, we'll see, out of a burning bush. Let's go and look at verse 7 as we see the realization of Genesis 50 and Exodus 2. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flown with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites. Would y'all bless my heart? Hivites. And don't forget the Jebusites, all right? All the ites. We got all the ites in there. Look at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Man, I think you got the wrong guy. Who am I to do this? And God said to him, I will be with you. I think this is so important just to kind of stop and pause. No matter what struggle God calls you into, no matter what challenge God calls you through, it's important to remember, if you're his child, all right? Now, I'm, all this is a presupposition that you're a born-again child of God who's actually following the call of God. But the reassurance we have of following the call of God is that he's not leaving us alone in the struggle. You see, when he's called us to go through it, when he's called us to go to it, He's actually going to be with us. And that ought to be super reassuring. These five words were, 
were, were really game-changing. These five words from God change everything. I will be with you. Say those five words with me. I will be with you. This is the word of God, even to you and even to me today, when we're facing difficult times in obeying him. Now, obviously, when we run away from God, when we are disobedient to God, these words are not true. When we leave the protective providential umbrella of safety and and protection and purpose and significance, then we are walking outside of this protective providential area and we're walking into the wrath of God that's being poured out on the sin of mankind. So we want to obviously make sure we understand we want to be with him. Wherever that is, wherever he's calling, we want to be in the presence of God. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's almost like Moses is like, so if they ask me for the password, you know, what am I going to tell them? You know, how do I convince them that you're the one who's speaking to me? Because they're never going to believe, man. And, and we'll find out in just a minute. God hadn't spoken for 400 years. God has not revealed himself and spoken to anyone in 400 years. So if I go to them and say, hey, this bush was burning and I heard the voice of God, they're going to be like, what are you smoking, man? I mean, that's, they're going to definitely think something's going on. I mean, what are you talking about? That, you're talking about you heard God's voice out of a bush. And so how can I, how can I tell them who you are? And here's what God said. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That sounds like a very simple, maybe even confusing answer, but we'll get to it in a second. I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel. It's the first of four times that he says to say something. He says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say, a third time, say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and there they are, the Jebusites again, all right? And the land flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse 18. And they will listen to your voice, speaking of the elders, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, a fourth time, and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord to the Lord God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Now remember, God said, if you go, if you're obedient, I'll be with you. Look at verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, you better believe he will let you go. This is the word of God. And so here's what we understand. God brought the plagues on Egypt simply because the king of Egypt would not let the people go. 
Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. Basically, you're not going to go empty handed when you leave. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, what's that mean? That's a weird ending to the chapter. I think chapter 3 ends as strangely as it begins in a different way. we got a burning bush in the beginning, and then by the time it ends, you've got looting taking place. But in some sense, divinely sanctioned plundering. And here's, I think, the, the main points we need to understand in this passage, and that is this. God will punish his enemies... And by his enemies, we mean those who are oppressive of the people of God. And so when there are people who are enemies of God's people, they are enemies of God. There's no separation, all right? And so these people are oppressive of the people of God, and therefore they are enemies of God, and God will punish those people. Vengeance is not ours. Honestly, it, it, it honestly, we got, it, it's very relevant even in our day in a culture surrounded by people who are bent against God. It kind of goes very consistent with this idea that we've been talking about for months now, and that is that God has not called us to be adversarial and build some kind of uh, militant army against a lost and a dying world. No, God has actually called us to be truth in love. John chapter 1, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so in the midst of a culture that's bent against God, we should absolutely, in the power of God and by the grace of God, it's the only way, we ought to go speak the truth of God's word in love. Not hate people, not push them away from the cross, but love them to the foot of the cross, the same cross that paid for your sins and for mine. There's no man or no woman outside the walls of this church that actually deserve the the grace of God any less than you. There's no sinner who is separated from God who deserves heaven any less than this pastor. All of us have sinned. And so we understand, man, we're, we're to approach this with the understanding that God's wrath is being poured out on mankind. God's wrath is going to be poured out on the enemies of God. We do not have to fight. We just need to be faithful and surrendered to do everything we can to bring people to Jesus. And so with that in mind, we understand, look, God calls himself in this passage, I am who I am. I am who I am. Now that seems like a very strange name. So, so with this, how do we know what God's trying to tell us in Exodus chapter 3? I want to I give you three, you could call them undeniable truths, all right? These are just characteristics of God. Three characteristics of God. They're undeniable truths about God that are all found in Exodus chapter 3. And they all center around this idea that he is the great I am. So what does this mean? First of all, I want you to see that God is holy. God is holy. Now, holy is a word that... Man, we hear in church, we hear surrounding like church conversation and language, but people have a misunderstanding a lot of times about what holiness is. Holiness is not obedience to legalistic rules. Holiness is not something that you achieve by being a good person. So there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. A lot of people think that somehow when you do things, you become holy, but that's really not true. You know, the only way you can live a holy life before God is to surrender to the power of God who can actually make you holy. 
See, there's nothing in you. There's nothing in me that actually is good and holy apart from Jesus Christ. So it's the power of Jesus in our life that's actually going to make us capable of being obedient to him. That's the only way you can love people who aren't lovable is by the grace of God. That's why, that, you mean that's holy? Yeah. I mean, that's how you live a holy life. It's not to be ugly to everybody and act like you're perfect and self-righteous, some pharisaical hypocrite. That's not holiness at all. That's ungodliness. That's ungodly Pharisees. Here's what holiness looks like. Holiness is an admission of our sin, recognition that we can't possibly do it without him. We crawl to the foot of the cross in our inability to save ourselves. And by the power and the grace of God, he fills us up. And he makes us holy. And so we live our lives in such a way that we're fueled by the holiness of God to live a holy life. So it's not an excuse saying you don't live a good life, but that goodness that you do, the good life that you live is fueled by the power of God. It's not earned by you or me. And so God is holy. Look at verses five and six again. Do not come near, God said to Moses. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. So God warns Moses not to come near. And there's a specific reason because he most likely would have been killed by the power of God and the presence of God. Uh, it's kind of similar to another story where Moses is protected by God and, uh, and he basically hides him in the cleft of the rock. And even thinking back to the, the uh, tabernacle system and how you had to tie a rope to the ankle of the priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And the reason why is because they were afraid he might, might die because he's in the presence and the power of God. And so if he dies while he's in there in the Holy of Holies, they'd drag him out by his ankle and not have to go in there and, and be in the presence of God as well. So this is, this is a, an obvious recognition, the power of the presence of God. Moses was told, stop coming closer. Don't come any closer. And so in chapter 13, we actually see another picture that's similar in a way to this burning bush because fire is, for those of you guys who are just students of the word and want to kind of make a note of this, fire is a symbol of the presence of God throughout the Old Testament. And so we see in the, in the burning bush, this is, a, this is a sign of the presence of God later on in chapter 13. God will lead his people. We'll get there eventually. He'll lead his people by cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So the presence of God is oftentimes seen in scripture as uh, fire. And uh, this is the first use in an interesting little fact here. First use of the word holy in the Bible. And it's only one of two times where the two words together in English translate holy ground in all of the Bible. Now, that, that kind of surprised me the more I thought about it. Now, the concept of holy ground is in other places. In fact, one of those is, is Joshua chapter 5, verse 15. If you remember, the commander of the Lord's army uh, comes to Joshua and he appears to him and he says, take off your sandals because the place on which you stand is holy, but it doesn't say holy ground. There are other places that, that it's the same concept, but this is the only time in the Old Testament that the terms holy ground are together. The New Testament reference is actually in Acts 7.33 when Stephen is preaching a message on Exodus chapter 3. So the original story of Exodus 3 is the only time where we see the words holy ground together. So I think it begs the question, what's he mean? What does it mean to be standing on holy ground? Because I think, uh, I think we could easily get really confused in our day. A lot of Christians mean well and get super confused about 
Is a building holy or is a place holy? I just want to make this clear. They were under the shadow of Mount Horeb, which was the Mount of God. That valley that he was in, leading the sheep there, and a bush starts burning. It's the presence of God. It's the holy ground. Listen, there was nothing holy about the dirt. There was nothing holy about the geographical address of the bush. Even the Mount of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, though it's a special mountain, you know what made the mountain special? The presence of God, all right? What made the mountain holy is the presence of God. And so there could, be, there could be a lot of buildings today that have thousands of people who are getting together and they may call it church and they may sing some songs and they may actually have a talk and they may, they may say things like holy. But here's the fact, the only thing that makes a place holy is God is there, all right? And the only thing that makes a man holy, the only thing that makes a woman holy is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lives inside of him. And this is a super important point. When we say God is holy, he's, he's the only thing that makes anything holy. And so if we're thinking somehow that, oh, if the, the, this building is such a special place, I would say, I do agree. I love that it's a special place. But if the building burned down tomorrow, God forbid, if the building burned down tomorrow, the church of Jesus Christ would be alive and well and God's church would not be shaken. Why? Because it's not the building that's holy. This isn't, a, this isn't somehow like holy two-by-fours, you know? The brick and mortar is, is nothing special about it. It's the presence of God in this church. It's the presence of God in your life that makes you holy. And so God is holy. But then let's look at the second thing. God is faithful. God is not just holy, he's also faithful. And when we see faithfulness of God from both a corporate and personal perspective... It really begins to make a lot of sense because, man, I tell you what, we think a lot of times, and I know when we think about Exodus, we're thinking about the people of God, and so God is faithful to Israel. Is that true? Absolutely. God is faithful to Israel in this story. He delivers them from bondage. And uh, on, on the night, actually, before Jacob left the promised land in Genesis 46, he appeared, God appeared to Jacob. And 400 years has passed. And so in Genesis 46, if you look between Genesis 46 and Exodus chapter 3, you have 400 years of time and no appearance of God. So God has not spoken to a man or his people in 400 years. But, but like we said last year, this is so important. Even in silence, even when we don't hear him, even when we don't see him, even when we don't feel him, God is always working. Romans 8, 28, God, God is actively working all things for the good of them that are called or love God and are called according to his purpose. And so when we answer the call of God and we're following the will of God, we can rest assured, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it, even if we don't hear him, God is working. But now is the moment, now is the crossroads here in Exodus 3 when God has decided to rescue his people. This is the moment in time where he is pulling them out of the oppression of Egypt. We could say all day long, well, why did God allow his people to be enslaved by the Egyptians? Really good questions, but the fact of the matter is God was working even in that moment of oppression. God never stopped working. 
In our lives, sometimes we see stuff going on and we're like so discouraged because we're thinking, man, where's God at? I mean, things aren't going the way I thought they would. I mean, I had all this mapped out and everything just got derailed. COVID's crazy. And then everybody just, man, it just seems like the world's turned upside down. And in our country in particular, I don't care what what party of any uh, situation or political platform you support. It doesn't matter. We all agree. Man, our country is kind of crazy right now. Everything's been turned upside down. But here's what, it's hard to see that God is working in times like that. But here's what I'm here to tell you. God's not stopped working. God's God's still working. And and it may be that you have to look really hard to see it. But I'm just telling you, you're, you're part of that today. God is still saving people. God is still working. When his people set themselves to the side... It's amazing. You know what the greatest testimony? And honestly, if you don't like this, I'm just going to tell you, you've got a spiritual problem. Some of you, oh, what's he going to say? Uh-oh. I'm serious, though. You know, one of, the, one of the greatest testimonies is when people who disagree in other things like politics can celebrate and lift their hands to Jesus Christ in the same building. That is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. And here's the reason why. Because what it causes, we we set our differences to the side. We set our preferences to the side. We set our personalities to the side. And we say, before I am this, before I am that, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. See, that that is a beautiful thing. And that's the only way that a church ultimately is going to make an impact in our day. So, so God was faithful to the people of God, Israel. But then secondly, he was faithful to Moses in particular. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Moses had made some mistakes. In fact, he'd killed an Egyptian not too long ago, right? We read it last week. And so uh, in the midst of all of this, Moses has ran away from Pharaoh. He's terrified he's going to be killed. And he spent 40 years in the shadow of Mount Horeb. He spent 40 years with these sheep, keeping his father-in-law, Jethro's sheep. And I think it's so interesting. There's no doubt Moses, again, totally caught off guard by a bush burning in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, But he's sitting there. He's just doing the deal, man. He's just keeping the sheep. He's spending 40 years of his life and no doubt probably thinking, I'm wasting my time. I, I, I wish I could have had more purpose and significance, but I made some mistakes and now, and now I'm the enemy of Pharaoh. The world hates me. There's no way I'm going to ever be used by God. And so I, I'm, just, I'm just wasting my time. I'm just doing the deal. I'm just wasting time until I die out here in the middle of, of the wilderness. It's so interesting. He was leading those sheep into the shadow of Mount Sinai. And that kind of gives us the clear picture. This is the same wilderness that he would eventually lead some other stubborn groups of people instead of sheep and as they're wandering in the wilderness it's a little light bulb moment it's the same wilderness because it's under the the mount of God Mount Sinai where Moses goes to the top of the mountain to receive the ten commandments and so this is what hit me when I was thinking about the messages we may think about that second third of uh, Moses life as wasted time but it was not wasted time because God was just getting him ready for uh, the Exodus. He was getting him ready. He was preparing him to lead the people of God out of bondage in Egypt. And then he knew, God knew, that even after they crossed the Red Sea, 
that the people of God would rebel against him. They would not uh, uh, run into the promised land and, and take the promised land. And so he was preparing Moses even then to lead his people in the wilderness. Now, here's what I'd say to you. You may say, well, I, I don't know that I want to be prepared to lead people in the wilderness. And again, it goes back. Do you want to do what God's called you to do or do you want to do what you think is best? Because at the end of the day, that's really the answer that all of us have to the question all of us have to answer is do we want to do what we think is best or do we want to follow the will of God? Because you may think you've been wasting time. You may think that you've just been in the wilderness keeping sheep for 40 years in obscurity. But the truth of the matter is God is preparing you. God is getting you ready. Just like David. You remember David? That little shepherd boy out in the middle of the field, no doubt with a sling and a bunch of stones, taking target practice, knocking over some Tin cans, right? No, that was before tin cans were invented, all right? But no doubt, he was, you know, he was ready. He was, he, was doing, he was getting prepared. He would have never guessed that God would have called him to face this giant named Goliath. But he had been prepared out in the middle of a, a field doing that insignificant thing. And so again, you may think that You're insignificant. You're far away from purpose. But God is getting ready to use you if you'll say yes to him. And so I've got to hurry because I want you to get the application just a minute. God is holy. God is faithful. But then third, God is eternal. God is eternal. And so when we're looking at the passage, how do we see that? Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The Lord, verse 15, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Speaking of ancestors and history past, this is my name, not only in the past, but forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so what's he saying? This is my name for eternity. This is who I am. This is who I was. This is who I am. And this is who I will be. So the entire passage in Exodus 3 teaches us several doctrinal imperatives. Teaches us by him saying, I am that I am. He is holy. He is faithful. And he is eternal. He is the standard. He is the definition. He is the one who defines the terms. He is who he says he is. And so regardless of what cultural trends may move us away from what God has said, the reason we stand with the word of God, the reason we stand with God himself, the God of the word, is because he is who he was. He is who he is and he will be who he will be. Look, we can't manipulate the truth. We can't, because of our subjective opinion, change who God is because the culture decided to shift away from truth. It's not our prerogative. It's not our, it's not our uh, right to shift things because we don't like them. Here's what we have to remember. He is God. We are not. He is God. We are not. But we don't, again, to make sure we uh, reinforce this, we don't run around and speak the truth in a hateful way. We want to do everything we can to reinforce, like Jesus, that we are full of grace and truth. So I want to give you some take-homes real quickly. I I wanted to fast-forward so I could get real quickly to two take-homes. The first is this. Look, in application, we never know what a day may bring. We never know what a day may bring. 
You may be here today and you may be like, I, I'm totally just here to see somebody baptized, you know? Or, or maybe you're here and watching from the beach. Maybe you're on vacation and you're like, man, I just, uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting this, but here's the deal. We wake up every day having no idea what God's gonna bring. You never know what a day may bring. Moses did not wake up that day thinking that God was gonna speak to him. It'd been 400 years. And you may not have been expecting it. You may not have been wanting it. But it may be that God is all up in your business. And he is convicting you right now. Maybe he is speaking to you. Maybe he is calling you. I'm just here to tell you that we don't have the right to determine when God speaks. Your greatest defining moment of purpose may catch you by surprise. You most likely will be the one who can't believe God used you when he uses you. You may be hiding in obscurity like Moses because of past mistakes, assuming that you have no future purpose. But in a moment of unlikely purpose, God may show up in a burning bush. And it may be that he is showing up in a burning bush to you today. I remember the day like it was yesterday in October of 1994 when the Lord called me, I would say called me and Amy together to ministry. Last thing that we either one ever thought would happen or should happen. And like Moses, my excuse was very much, God, don't you know I'm 114 out of 115 in my graduating class. I'm the second dumbest person in Rockmart, Georgia. Amen. That was my excuse. I was like, I can't even put a sentence together. What you talking about? I, God, you got the wrong dude. Sometimes I think it's, it's probably better for me and my personality that that was the case. If I'd have been the smartest person in my school, it'd have been a different excuse. God, I got way too much potential. Don't you know I could be this, I could be that. Why would I, why would I be a preacher? I want you to hear, listen, no matter who you are, God doesn't really come and ask for your vote when he calls you. Look, he's not called everybody to be a pastor and a preacher, but I know this is without question. He's called some of you to be pastors and preachers. Now, you may be sitting on the beach with your toes in the sand, and it may be God, the power of his Holy Spirit is convicting you right now. He may be calling you to the mission field. He may be calling you to plant a church. He may be calling you to keep hold a baby. He may be calling you to volunteer for VBS. Look, it's not all occupational ministry. Although I think that's something we don't say enough. God, God may be calling you to youth ministry, to children's ministry. He may be calling you to go on a mission trip. The White Horse Missions or another one of our mission partners. Look, what do I do with that, Wayne? What do I do? I mean, Wayne, I'm busy. God calls busy people. Wayne, I, 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 look, I, I, I don't know. I'm the last person God calls unlikely people. Wayne, you just don't have any idea. I'm, I'm, I'm not capable. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely the least gifted. God calls incapable people. Wayne, I, I just don't want to do what God's calling me to do. God calls resistant people. Just ask most people who've answered the call, and they'll tell you they ran for a long time. 
God calls resistant people. And let me just tell you a little something. He's not going to stop bugging you with it. You could, you could say no to him to the day you die and you'll be miserable the entire time. Why in the world would you not say yes to him? And that's really where I want to leave you with it today is put your yes on the table. Would you for goodness sake stop running from his call? Stop giving him excuses. Man, if he can use me, he can use anybody in any way. Don't run from him, run to him. You may say, wait, you said put your yes on the table. What's the question? That's the whole point. It doesn't matter what the question is. Your answer, my answer needs to be yes. There's no end. I know this is what you would expect the lead pastor of our church to say, but I'm telling you, I believe this with my entire heart. There's absolutely no end what God can do through Upstate Church in this region. No end. No end. You know what's going to determine how much gets done by the power of God through our church? How many of us put our yes on the table? How many of us say yes? I wonder, does God want to save people? Are you serious? Of course God wants people to be saved. I wonder if God wants me to go to a mission trip. Don't even pray about it. Yes. God wants you to go to other countries to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray about it, but understand, God wants you to share the gospel. See, sometimes we over-spiritualize things because we want an excuse. Well, God wasn't leading me to do that. It's funny how God has never led you to do that. Y'all all right? It's funny how God's never led you to share your faith. You know how you know God's led you to share your faith? You read the Bible. How do you know if God's calling you to foreign missions, to go on a mission trip, or to, to be a witness in the workplace? Read your Bible. This is what God has called us to do, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So if we want to be obedient, put your yes on the table. Stop making it a trivialized issue and wondering what should I do. Just do something for Jesus. Do something for Jesus until he tells you to do something else. Say yes to him today. Man, that's my challenge. Super general challenge to be obedient to God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We pray you'd speak, God. God, we pray you'd shake us loose by your power. I know there's so many things that we put in the way of you. We get distracted by social issues. We get distracted, maybe oftentimes even the name of Christianity. We get distracted by other things that actually prevent us from hearing from you. God, would you remove all the things that have prevented us from hearing from you? And God, would you speak? God, would you light the fire? God, light the fire in our heart that will not go out. Let us be the burning bush today, God. Set us on fire. And I pray that we would take the gospel truth everywhere we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?